This is the last of the interviews we recorded at the Nebula Awards back in May. If you remember, Veronica was traveling at the time, but Josh Lawrence, our de facto community manager, joined me, and we talked to some amazing authors, and one of those amazing authors is Ken Liu. His novel, The Grace of Kings, has been put up for pre-order on Amazon since we talked to him, but let's hear what he had to say. So we're at the Nebula Awards, talking with Ken Liu. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it, uh, your short story, The Paper Menagerie, swept the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards. Uh, his short story, Mono No Aware, won the 2013 Hugo, and his novella, The Man Who Ended History, a documentary, was also nominated for a Hugo. Ken, do you take performance-enhancing drugs for all those? Like <laughs> coffee, tea, beer? I do drink a lot of coffee, so perhaps that is the, uh, that is the key. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Um, Josh, you want to lead us off sure for someone who hasn't read you yet what would you tell them Uh, about my work Mm -hmm. um i would say that i am interested in writing fiction uh that's on the science fiction side that's as hard as i can make them while also being as humane as possible Um, i try to write science fiction that has a solid rationalistic worldview while maintaining faith in transcendence so, so when you say hard sci-fi, you're talking about technical accuracy or just uh, grounded in rationalism? It sounded like maybe the second. Both, I would say. Um, I, I do try to make the technical aspects actually very accurate. Um, that's something. That I don't try to stick a lot of equations into my stories, although sometimes I do. There are a couple of stories which are actually filled with diagrams and equations mm-hmm. to the consternation of some readers. Um, but at least I try to make the technical aspects accurate. Almost all the science fiction I write, even those that seem very mythical or um, uh, just kind of close to science fantasy, often are based on actual real science papers, uh, the, the concepts underneath. Have you read or uh, read much about The Martian by Andy Weir? I'm just curious. No, I have not. So it's his attempt was to take an actual NASA plan for landing on Mars and then write his story as closely to that as possible. Oh, that's that wonderful. sounds like a similar sort of that's a cool idea mindset. Yeah. 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 So, what short story uh, is most recent? What are you most excited about? Uh, about my own. Yeah, stuff. of your own stuff. Um, wow, that's a interesting question. Um, that's sort of like asking which of your kids you favor the most. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Um, I have a bunch of stories that are coming out uh, very soon that I'm excited about. Um, there's one in John Joseph Adams' um, Weird West uh, anthology uh, called Dead Man's Hand. I have a story in there called What I Assume You Shall Assume. Um, and people who know Whitman obviously know where the quote comes from. But it's a, it's a Wild West short story um, that features magic based on the Taiping Rebellion in China, which is contemporaneous with the Civil War, um, but not often discussed in the same breath. So I hope readers will like it. Excellent. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Well, Turk Kristen on our Goodreads forum wants to know, how have you bridged the gap from writing short to long form? 
That was kind of a challenge for me. Um, part of the reason why I focus so much on short fiction is because um, I have two very young children. Uh, and when you do that, I'm sure parents among the audience will know this, it's very difficult to find long stretches of time where you can concentrate on the same project and it's very very hard to do uh, yeah yeah you know you, you wish like you can somehow just not sleep and then do all the work while they're sleeping um, so I end up being able to really focus on things um, only small things that can fit into my head and that can be done in a couple of um, nights of drafting at a time. So that's why short fiction was such a focus for a long time. When I tried to shift over to writing um, novels, it was very hard uh, because the just the very idea that you have to keep so much of it in your head all the time and to keep on um, working at it day in, day out, and not lose focus um, was hard. And also, you know, at the same time, I had all these short fiction deadlines I had to meet, um, which is probably why the first novel took me three years to do. Um, I, I think that's much longer than the recommended time period. People are not supposed to take that long to do their first novels. Um, you know, but it didn't work out that way. I had no choice. Um, so I think I learned quite a lot, uh, and I'm hoping that I can apply the lessons to my second book, um, and hopefully I'll be able to draft it and revise it and get it into the shape that I'm comfortable with much faster than I did with my first book. You could always take George R. R. Martin as a precedent, though. Ah, uh, yes, yes. You'll always feel a little faster. There you go. There you go. It always makes me feel better. <laughs> uh, Terp Kristen had another question for you as well. Uh, because you've done a lot of translation, she asked, what is the difference in your approach when working on your own stuff compared with translation? And she says, how do you avoid introducing your own quirks? As she puts it? Yeah, that's, that's also hard. Um, the, a lot of the writers I translate... Um, so I translate a very wide range of writers. They have very different styles. Um, Liu Cixin, who is a very hard sci-fi writer, um, who I, I think his style is very close to you know somebody like Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke, um, a very much more focused on the idea science side of things and not so much on the characterization, uh, which is, tends to be my own focus. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting exercise when I try to translate Liu Cixin because... I have to sort of get into the mindset that this is really what makes his fiction tick. This is the part that people come to read for, and this is the part that he's passionate about. And I need to adapt my voice to suitably reflect that and not to be pulled into my own natural uh, inclinations on the sort of thing I like to linger on. Um, you know, simultaneously, when I translate somebody like Tang Fei, who is a very surreal um, fantasist, um, and, and she writes work that are very um, uh, slipstream uh, and, and sort of on the boundary of science fiction and fantasy. Um, in, that, in that case, what she really loves is, is, is voice and imagery and the logic of metaphors. Uh, again, the sort of thing that I sometimes like, but is not my primary mode of, of thinking. Again, I have to learn to absorb that and try to reflect that voice. I think above all, a translator job is to uh, convey the voice of the original as accurately as possible. You know, it's a performance. You know, what, what you're doing when you're translating is a performance. I, I'm not the the person who came up with this um, metaphor originally. Um, I, I think it was brought up in a, in a New York Times article about translation uh, discussing William Weaver's work um, with Calvino. Um, but the, I think the metaphor of, of 
doing translation as a performance is is actually very accurate because you are trying to convey in a completely new medium, a new language, a new culture, a new set of assumptions and reader expectations, some echo, some sort of essence of the original. And there's a lot of room for you as the interpretive artist to, to do the performance in a way that feels true to you as well as to the vision of the original. Um, and that part is very hard, but I, I think once I've learned to absorb that original voice and to really fall and empathize with the artist, the original artist, and what he or she was trying to do, I can try to replicate it in a, in a way that would make sense to the audience I'm trying to speak to now. And once I've done that, if I've done my job properly, uh, I will be able to isolate my own quirks out of it. It's just like how when you're writing, you need to empathize with your characters and try to take on a ventriloquist voice to be able to speak um, through a voice that's not your own. I was going to say, I would think it would help you to be able to write character voices to have that practice of being forced to find someone else's voice. Yeah, I think that's true. I've definitely found that um, having done the translation, I've, I've gotten better over time. You know, I, I, looking back at my first translations, I, I think I've definitely improved tremendously in terms of my ability to, to do the performance. I have found that the exercise is useful in terms of my own ability to create new voices and characters and to, to authentically uh, replicate what I think the essence of their vision is. Our listener, Sean, has some additional questions about translation. Uh, he says, most of the authors you've translated have been from the People's Republic. Is there less science fiction coming out of Taiwan, or is it less interesting? Is there any cross-pollination between authors in the two countries? There's actually a lot of science fiction being done um, in all the Chinese language um, areas of the world. Um, so from Taiwan, uh, people are probably familiar with um, Huang Fan's uh, Zero and Other Fictions, which came out, I think, a couple years ago and won, I believe, the World Science Fiction uh, Translation Awards, uh, which is a wonderful um, collection uh, that readers who are interested in translated science fiction should pick up. Out of Hong Kong, there's, of course, um, also Atlas, um, Archaeology of an Imaginary City, which has won many awards and is being heavily promoted. Um, I uh, and also um, you know authors uh, in the Chinese speaking speaking regions of the world obviously read each other. Um, uh, my friend Chen Fan, who is from the People's Republic, um, has written some short fiction that have won awards in Taiwan. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I, I know a lot of Taiwan authors also have won awards uh, in the mainland. Um, so, you know, obviously that kind of cross-pollination is, is clearly happening. Um, I don't tend to uh, focus my translation efforts on the works coming out of Taiwan and Hong Kong because uh, there generally are well-established channels for translations being done uh, from those regions. I mean, obviously, as I've mentioned, um, these prominent English language collections are being put out. Um, so there's not a whole lot that I can add to it. Uh, I, I feel that it's most effective for me to try to fill in areas where there isn't as much work being done. Uh, and then I think that there's not as much work done uh, translating um, very interesting, very different, very unique um, work from the mainland writers. Uh, and that's why I tend to focus my work on them. Uh, you always try to 
find the niche where your efforts can make the most impact. And so that's what I've done. It's one of the reasons I am happier people like you are translating, because it helps uh, somebody who doesn't speak a language be able to access some wonderful things that they, they might not otherwise be able to. Do you often, or do you ever, run into stories where they just can't be translated? They just wouldn't survive the process? Yeah, that happens a lot, unfortunately. Um, Language is actually the least difficult aspect of translation. I mean, anybody who knows something about um, foreign language will know that the gap and the difference between languages is is far less than the gap between cultures um, that you're trying to translate. I mean, for example, um, uh, if you try to read... um, a, a real translation rather than a retelling or re- reimagining of the Iliad or the Odyssey um, without a lot of footnotes I think most readers, contemporary readers would find it impenetrable because the, 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 the language is all perfectly comprehensible you understand what the words are and you understand the sentence it's all grammatical but the references upon references upon references the mythological uh, you know, language of metaphors is so dense, it's impossible to make sense of it without lots of footnotes. And this is a culture that's really the direct um, ancestor of our own Western culture. And even even so, you know, most of us know something about the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey. But if you try to actually read the translation, a real translation of the original, it's I, I would imagine nine out of ten of us would give up after a while because it's just almost impenetrable. Rosy-fingered Dawn all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. The, the, the ways of thinking is so different. Uh, same thing with something like Beowulf. You know, again, without lots of footnotes, it's, it's very hard to sink back into the kennings and to, to understand the, the kinship uh, ideas and so on and so forth. So similarly, um, Chinese works are embedded in their source culture to different degrees. Uh, no different from how uh, American works are embedded in American culture to different degrees. The difference is, though, um, I do think that uh, across the world, and um, in China in particular, most um, Chinese readers have a much better understanding of what American culture is like than, than vice versa, uh, for the simple reason that you know the U.S. is a, is a cultural exporter. Um, our cultural values, understandings, and references are Popular, they are they are exported across the world. So that when we make references to old Hollywood films and uh, make uh, references to the founding fathers and quote them in our um, literary production and so on and so forth, uh, and an American uh, a Chinese um, reader is most likely to get them. Whereas a Chinese work that makes extensive references to classical Chinese history and to uh, classical um, Chinese attitudes uh, is less likely to be understood by an American reader. Um, so to the extent that Chinese works tried to tap into world culture or a predominantly Western frame of reference with only some references to classical Chinese heritage, it's easy to do the translation because the, the, the framework is easier. Um, there are some works that are so embedded in the Chinese uh, cultural framework that it's just it's impossible. I mean, I always think back to that old Star Trek The Next Generation episode where um, there's, a, there's a people that the Enterprise encounters where um, the alien language is perfectly comprehensible through the Universal Translator, but since they are 
they like to speak in terms of allusions and references to mythological uh, concepts, it's impossible for humans to understand what they're really saying until Is it the shaka when the balls exactly yeah, exactly yeah. only until the two peoples develop some sort of shared cultural experience that can they start to reference these experiences and start developing the language of these references and I, I often feel that way when I'm trying to translate some of these Chinese works that are like that so for example um, one set of modern Chinese classics uh, are these um, martial arts wuxia classics by uh, the great Hong Kong writer Jing Yong. Um, Jing Yong has rarely been translated into English, and uh, if you try to read the English translations, you can see why. Um, he makes very, very, very heavy reference to, and, 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 and depends on references to classical Chinese poetry, classical Chinese history, uh, lots of these sort of shared vocabulary of heroes and myth that are just impossible to convey without tons of footnotes. And, and honestly, most readers are not interested in reading a bunch of footnotes to, to get something unless they already know the story to some extent. Um, some modern speculative fiction writers in China are like that. Uh, Ma Bo-Yung is, is one. Uh, he's, a, he's a friend of mine, and I really love his work. He writes just amazing, amazingly imaginative, funny speculative pieces based on uh, Chinese history and Chinese myth. And unfortunately, um, most of his works are not translatable. I, I, I've tried, and it's just not possible to really convey the, the, the richness of, of his vision. Um, and it's not a matter of language. It's just because the, 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 the cultural vocabulary he uses is so embedded in Chinese. The, and that relates right to Sean's next question. Yeah, yeah. Our, our former member Sean asked, uh, well, he says, one of the stories you've translated was based upon Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. How much influence does Western sci-fi have on Chinese sci-fi? Now, you've already touched on that a bit in saying that there is some knowledge of Western cultural uh, points that are already part of the kind of stories that you're translating, but how how uh, strong is that influence? It depends on the period that you're talking about and also the type of writer that you're talking about. Everyone's somewhat different. Um, I've actually translated a recent uh, post by Liu Cixing, uh, one of China's most prominent science fiction writers for Tor.com um, that I think uh, listeners might find interesting. In it, Liu Cixing discusses the history of Chinese sci-fi and the extent of Western influence and how modern Chinese sci-fi fits into uh, the overall world sci-fi framework. Uh, one of my friends, um, Xia Jia, uh, who is a very, very accomplished science fiction writer and also um, pursuing a PhD in comparative literature, uh, has done a, a very deep study of Chinese science fiction for her dissertation. I've read parts from, from it, and I'm hoping to be able to bring some of her academic insights uh, in translation uh, as well. She has studied this idea of what makes Chinese sci-fi Chinese very deeply, and, and her conclusion uh, is also interesting. But briefly, to, to summarize and answer the, the question you're posing, um, the pre-1990 um, history of Chinese science fiction is very complicated, uh, but you can generally make a generalization that the sort of science fiction written during the People's Republic, um, the early years of the People's Republic, is not super heavily influenced by Western models. They are influenced more by Soviet models, um, although they're distinguished from a lot of Soviet science fiction 
being by being somewhat apolitical. Um, a lot of the Soviet um, science fiction tend to be about communist utopias. They 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 besides the technology aspect of it, they also go into the sort of the the ideal human society organized along communist principles. Chinese sci-fi tends to be not quite like that. There's quite a bit a bit of optimism early on about technology and the role of science, but not so much imagining of communist utopias. Communism tends to be not even really talked about that much. And Liu Cixin mentions this as, a, as an interesting distinction between Chinese sci-fi and Soviet sci-fi during that period. After the 1990s, um, as a result of sort of the opening up uh, of Chinese uh, markets, most modern Chinese sci-fi writers are deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in the set of Anglo-American references in speculative fiction. So for any kind of major movement you can identify in Anglo-American science fiction, uh, be it cyberpunk or you know biopunk or whatever, um, you can find easy analogs in Chinese sci-fi and share, share the same kind of references. Uh, I'm translating uh, uh, the debut novel by my friend Chen Qiufan, uh, which is called The Waste Tide. It's a near-future dystopian cyberpunk post-human story um, about um, people, uh, migrant workers, uh, who work in the e-waste recycling industry, um, rebelling against uh, their oppressors. And uh, the, the story is, um, you know, heavily uses imagery that will be very familiar to Western readers. But there's a distinct Chinese spin to them. Uh, there's a very distinctive use and, and, and the way the novel critiques post-colonialism and, and globalization, I think it's very refreshing because it's not a perspective that's often taken by Western authors. You know, Western authors being from the privileged position of the developed world uh, always have a quite different view about globalization and what it feels like uh, to be in a country like China uh, that's in the uneasy position of between developing and developed world. Um, and I think my friend Chen Jiafan does a really great job in this novel of sort of showing that in a way that's very visceral and, uh, and, and using very lovely images. And then and I think it's very accessible to Western readers because he uses the vocabulary of, of, of these references and cyberpunk uh, that will be very accessible to people here. So briefly, modern science fiction in China is in some ways less quote-unquote Chinese than before because it's much more integrated into the set of values and references prevalent in Western sci-fi. Uh, and yet, at the same time, they remain distinct because of the difference in experience between, between Chinese uh, writers and Western writers. Yeah. Within fandom or within the author community itself in China and the science fiction world, has there been any criticism of that? Are there certain ones saying that there's too much Oh wow, that's that's very insightful of you that you jumped to that right away. Um, uh, most readers, I would say, again, I'm not an expert on Chinese sci-fi. I'm no more than a translator and a normal participant, so I'm not suggesting I'm speaking in an authoritative way. I'm speaking only as as one participant, and I have one perspective. My view is that most Chinese readers uh, enjoy the trend of modern sci-fi. They grew up on a diet of Western sci-fi. They mm -hmm. read authors, you know, like William Gibson, Paolo Bacigalupi, and so on and so forth. And they, 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 
this is what they like, and they like to see their own writers participate in this tradition and become currents within the larger river of world sci-fi. This is, they're happy. There are some readers who are nostalgic and feel that as a result of this, Chinese sci-fi is losing its distinctiveness, as particularly Chinese. Uh, some of the scholars especially uh, have been saying that as Chinese sci-fi becomes more popular among Chinese readers, and also uh, getting a chance to be translated into English, the result is uh, that most Chinese sci-fi writers write less distinctively and, and that there's not as much of, a, um, uh, of the unique, uh, uniqueness of Chinese sci-fi to inspire young readers into science that, that used to be there. Um, I, 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 my feeling is that this tends to be a nostalgic minority point of view. Uh, but obviously, uh, that's just my perspective. I, I don't claim that that's, in fact, authoritative. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about your writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an upcoming novel, The Grace of Kings. Uh, what, what can you tell us about it? Okay, so uh, this book has been... Uh, I've been working on it for three years. The The world in which the book is set in... Um, so it's a silk punk epic fantasy... Um, but it's not set. It's set in, in a world that's clearly inspired by Asian cultural traditions, but it is not Asian. Um, it's non-Western, but it's not Asian. Um, the world was created by my wife Lisa and me uh, years ago uh, because we were, you know, we were all very inspired by these ancient epics um, in Chinese history. They are for for chinese cultural participants this take have the same status as you know the iliad and the odyssey and, and the Aeneid for us um so because lisa and i both were have these very fond these very fond memories of these ancient epics we wanted to reimagine their stories um using the vocabulary of modern epic fantasy and introduce them to a western audience uh, but we couldn't figure out quite how to do it so we created this world that is clearly inspired by the the East Asian traditions that we're familiar with, but we also changed it, transformed it, and made it um, to us more uh, sort of more able to convey the kind of vision we wanted to do. Because we wanted to reimagine these stories, uh, both to 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 sort of point out the ways that so many mythical traditions share resonances, but also to critique some aspects of the classical Chinese world that they reflected. So that's the world. It's a it's a it's a it's a world in which there are airships, there are you know silk punk technologies of various sorts. There are gods, there are fantastical creatures, there are martial arts heroes, um, and there are uh, also men and women uh, who practice magic. And this is a world in which uh, it's an archipelago divided into seven kingdoms, and there is an attempt by a tyrannical emperor to unite the king unite the kingdoms and two uh, friends who decide to rebel against the emperor, and, and they become close friends, uh, as close as brothers, uh, only to discover that their ideals are irreconcilable. And as the rebellion comes to nearing victory, the two friends turn into enemies against each other. So in some, some ways, it's a story as old as anything. This, sure. is, this is sort of the, the most ancient Mesopotamian epics are based on this kind of concept. But at the same time, uh, I feel like I've tried to do something fresh. Uh, 
I, I hope that it reads very differently from what people come to expect of Western setting-based um, medieval European-inspired epic fantasy. This is a this is an Asian-inspired non-Western soap punk epic fantasy that I hope people will like. And this is the first book in the series, which I've done. Uh, and I have two more books plotted out in the same world that I hope readers will follow me and uh, go on. It's interesting because we were just talking to Emily Jang, and she's doing a similar thing in, in the sense of, of taking inspiration from folktales, East Asian folktales particularly, but in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Emily yeah, takes the same impulse in a totally different direction. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really fun to see that we're going to have choices like that uh, to choose from. I mentioned to her as well, we read Masterly and Number 10 Ox stories earlier this mm-hmm. year as one of our sword and laser picks. Uh, do you... Do you take those sorts of previous adaptations into account, or are you trying to are you trying to go more direct from source? I try to go direct from source. Yeah. Um, one of the, the the criticisms I got from um, uh, Chinese readers uh, is that they wanted early on is that they wanted me to go bolder to change things more, and so I've done that in revisions. Um, you know, for for Western readers who are not familiar with the source. The, the changes will make no difference because they, they wouldn't necessarily know what I've changed and what I haven't changed. But I, I do think it's important to take the feedback from my Chinese readers to, to change things quite a bit. So I'm hoping that this will be appealing uh, to, to readers here as well as to readers uh, who have a Chinese tradition background. Um, you know, the hope is always to write the story to be interesting to everybody and, and not to just specifically for one audience. Of course, yeah. I like the idea of more silk punk. I do too. I've, uh, I've I've tried to do various things in that vein uh, quite a bit, uh, but this is this is the first real you know full length novel work where I've, I've been able to put that vision into practice. So I really hope people like it. Uh, I, I put a lot of effort into oh, this. This will be funny. So um, this is sort of kind of reflective of in general my creative uh, process. So you know as I, I've been saying, this is a soap punk fantasy in, in which the technology level is basically. Um, what you would consider to be Chinese Middle Ages, uh, but there are airships, you know, and stuff like that. And to, to make the airships work, I, I had to do a lot of research to figure out a way to make it realistic. And um, I showed one of my beta readers is a, is a noted uh, security expert um, and, 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 a, and a prominent scientist. And he wrote back to me and he was like, your airships make no sense. How can they possibly work? You know, how does the buoyancy work? Because in the in the novel, I described the the airships as being rigid framed airships filled with these um, lift gas bladders. So like a zeppelin. Like a zeppelin, yeah. exactly. But the the, the bladders, um, uh, I envisioned them to work in the following manner: the bladders hold air under hold lift gas under pressure. So. When you want to decrease buoyancy and make the ship go down, what you would do is winch the, the, the ropes around it tight to compress the air and, and make the lift bladder smaller. Um, so it works just like a submarine, where mm-hmm. because the volume of the, of the lift bladders are smaller, it decreases the buoyancy. And when you want to make the ship go up, you just loosen the, the ropes and make it go up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I described it originally was not clear, so that my beta reader thought I was talking about letting the lift gas out and oh. in because that's how real zeppelins work. Mm-hmm. Real zeppelins did not compress their lift gas, rather they let the gas out and so on and so forth. So I said, no, 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 this works. This is this is based on first principle. This is how it'll work. And he's like, 
no, no Zeppelins work that way. That is not how they ever work. So I had to go do research, and I found some patents filed by people that, really? that talk about um, making airships work along the principle I described. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, 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 they say that you know, one of the problems with Zeppelin is that you had to let the gas out. Right. That, whereas, in fact, on, on physics principle alone, you can compress the, the pressure of, of, of the lift gas and achieve the same result. And I was very proud. I was like, I figured this out on my own. You know? <laughs> so I sent the balance to him. Right. So I sent the balance to him and I was like, see, see, you know, this, this works. This is, this is actually a real way. And he was like, oh, yeah, it does work, but you got to describe it more clearly. So anyway, so I changed my description and made it work. But I was very proud of the fact that, you know, for an epic fantasy novel, I did all this scientific research and I actually came up with, a, with an idea that I think is very cool that actually works, that was not implemented um, you know, in our world, but is in principle possible. Right. But at least was patentable. Right? It was patentable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you know, my, my beta readers know that I have this affinity for these kind of things. So some of them have sent me these crazy patents that they found. And they're like, maybe you can stick this in your, in your nice. novel. And I was like, oh, yes, this is great. <laughs> Collecting crazy patents. Yes. Right. I was like, this is great to get new technology. It's a great sub-website you could create. Yeah, totally, right. totally. Yeah. Yeah. Your yeah. ideas. Right. Right. I should be like, I'll make them famous. Right, real <laughs> Technology. That's, that's awesome. It's it's a silk punk patent fiction. Yes, patent fiction. <laughs> well, speaking of the two other novels in the series, um, Ben wants to know. Uh, he's well. He says you seem amazingly prolific between writing, translating, and other responsibilities and projects. Science fiction writer, poet, lawyer, and computer programmer. Any time management tips for us? Uh, if, if, I, if I tell you what has worked for me, I'm sure most readers will, will throw things at me. Uh, my secret was uh, basically having babies. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, before, before my daughters... That were... is the first time I've heard someone say they had a baby for time management. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you that. Maybe right. it's the trial, I'm guessing it's the trial by fire of learning techniques to deal with that. It, 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 or... It's a combination of these things. I mean, before, before my daughters were born, I think I was extremely efficient. I, I recall many evenings where I told my wife, you know, this is one of those nights, I'm going to focus on writing. And, and what ends up happening is I'm sitting down there and I'm surfing the web. And it's like, you know, five hours later, and I'm like, I have written a grand total of zero words, and I have surfed hundreds of web pages, <laughs> and that that was not useful at all. I know My that feels. <laughs> right. right. Um, so, but but after you know uh, my my daughters were born, uh, I sort of had to be much more efficient because now it's like, you know, the babies need you. This is your real job. You you got to focus on that. And whenever you actually do finally have some downtime. Surfing the web randomly is no longer an option. You, you know, if you want to meet your deadline and actually get that story done, you're going to have to sit there and do it. Uh, so I've learned to write on the commute in and back from work. I've learned to uh, to, to do brainstorming on the phone while I'm feeding the baby. Uh, I, I've learned to do things like think about what it is I want to write and then just write them out in a burst um, uh, when I get a moment to sit down. So. All of these things ended up being pretty helpful. Uh, the translation, too. Um, that, that I've learned that I can do by sort of reading the text very closely while, when I can't actually sit down and type, you know, when I'm on the train or walking around or something, and, and just really absorb the text into my head until I've got the phrases worked out in my mind how I want to say them. 
Uh, and then when there's a moment when can, where, I can, where I can sit down, I just focus on getting half a page or so out. Um, and in these little bursts, things, things get done. Uh, it's all about little bursts of product, productivity. Um, and I'm sure other people can learn this lesson without having to have children. But for me, I, I never managed to learn it until I had children. It sounds like you're packet switched yes, your entire yes, life. Very yeah. good. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, our final question from the audience comes from Jenny. She, I think she's a fan because she says, what would it take for you to decide to write full time? Uh, <laughs> Um, for this book to go on New York Times uh, <laughs> buy the book Jenny yes. buy the book yes um, you know seriously the, 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 this is the same struggle every writer has sure. which is that they, they gotta somehow to be confident that they can replace the income stream from their day job with this very uncertain very weird very unpredictable thing no one was publishing uh, I, I mean I don't I don't care how confident you are you, you you're you're never gonna be sure that you're gonna get you know people will receive your book the way that you want it to be received that, that it will do well there's just so many things outside of your control um, for me also it's complicated because I, I like my job a lot I, I work as a, um, a, a litigation consultant for high technology cases um, and I, I, I like my work a lot. There's a lot of uh, uh, creativity in what I do in terms of um, trying to figure out the legal concepts and the technology um, and to, to advise lawyers on what the right thing to do is. Um, I get to use my legal and my technology training. So, you know, it's hard to, to find a job like that, and I, I, I like my day job. So quitting it is, is not really something that I think about much right now. Um, it's certainly conceivable that one's uh, my kids are I mean look if this book does so well that suddenly you know I can retire from my job tomorrow you're not crazy right. yes yes yeah. why wouldn't you or if you if the lottery ticket actually comes sure. through and I'm like Ooh, you know the short but yeah. but short of those kind of things I, I don't think I I'm planning on quitting exactly and I'm sure actually most writers probably think that way because in some ways Having the day job is, is provides that foundation, that kind of stability for them to be able to take the risks they do with their creative work. That's something that N.K. Jiminson said. Yeah. In her, she, she had a period where she was not working and just writing. She says it was horrible for her productivity. Yeah, Nora, yeah, yeah, exactly. She yeah. said that, yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, Kat, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to share your insights on translation and, and talk about all of this stuff. Where can folks uh, find more about you and buy Grace of Kings when it comes out? Yay. Uh, so Grace of Kings is coming out from Saga Press, uh, Simon Schuster's new um, genre of fiction imprint in uh, on April 7th 2015 and you can find out more about the book and my work in general by going to my website which is kenliu.name k-e-n-l-i-u dot n-a-m-e N-A-M-E. Yes. You got a dot name. You're I got the a first dot name, dot yes. name person. Uh, I, I, I got I, the <laughs> domain because, you know, back then I was trying to be a really good net 
citizen. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, it's this is name. the domain. This is this is the right way to do it. It's not .com because that's for very commercial stuff. And this is not all commercial. It's it's all about you know my. You're not a nonprofit. Stuff. You're right, not going to exactly. do .org. I was right. like I'm doing that very geek thing. You yeah, know, yeah. This is the right, right classification and this is the right thing to do. So I got it, and only to realize that it never took off. So I am one of the few people with awesome. a .name domain. <laughs> Support that decision, folks. K E N L I U dot name. Uh, thanks again, Ken. Appreciate Thank you very it. much. Yeah. Enjoy it. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there!